Welcome back to another episode of Dialogues with me, Richard Reeves. I talked today to Christine Ember, who is a columnist on the Washington Post, and her new book, which is called Rethinking Sex, uh, A Provocation. And I, I was really interested in the book because I think it's a, a very uh, interesting and topical issue right now, which is what's happening in our, in our sex lives. And she basically argues that something's going quite badly wrong uh, with our sex lives. Uh, and she talks about how consent has become the sort of gold standard of good or bad sex. And she wants to go beyond that and talk about ethical sex, good sex. So sex is good, not just in the sense of being pleasurable, but also in some way ethical by which she means drawing on Aristotle and Aquinas, uh, loving sex in the sense of willing the good uh, of the other. And, and so along the way, we talk quite a bit about the differences between men and women in terms of their attitudes towards sex and the dangers of women being held up to or down to, I, th I think she would put it, the uh, masculine ideas of sex. We talk about how there is a restriction of the debate about, about sex to the one of consent uh, as really kind of missing the mark in terms of what a lot of people are, are seeking from their, their sex lives, most of us, I'm sure. The so-called sex recession, with fewer young adults reporting having sex and whether that's a good or a bad thing and what's driving that. We agree that good sex, defined ethically in her terms, is not constrained by a particular institution or arrangement, so can take place uh, on a one-night stand, uh, for example, and not necessarily within marriage, although Christine does make the point that the longer, the more of a committed relationship you're in, the more, uh, the more chance there is of, of having good sex in that ethical sense. We talk about the orgasm gap, between women having sex in committed relationships as opposed to a casual relationship and what that tells us in part about differences between men and women, whether sex workers can be engaging in good sex uh, and, and much, much more uh, along the way. So Christine, I think is a really great writer and a really interesting thinker on contemporary culture. And I think in this, in this book and in this conversation, she's focused on a particularly timely and interesting issue. She also talks about her own journey, uh, evangelical Christian background, convert to Roman Catholicism and how her theology and religious beliefs have uh, definitely influenced her beliefs on this, I think, without constraining them. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Well, Christine, thanks for coming on. Welcome to Dialogues. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. Well, I'm excited to talk about this. I actually am very interested in the question of sex and what it means in contemporary society. I will admit right up the front that I have my own book coming out on boys and men, and I had a whole, cha whole chapter on sex that I've I basically cut <laughs> because I couldn't I couldn't really figure out where to land on it. Um, and so the fact that you've, you've written a whole book about it fills me with uh, admiration in many ways. And I, I, I want to, I really want to get into So congratulations on, on the book, uh, Rethinking Sex, A Provocation, <laughs> which is what we'll, we'll talk about today. And really interesting and for your honesty about it too. But uh, with all these kinds of books, I think there's, there's a problem that's trying to be solved. So we'll get to the solutions and what you think is happening. But clearly you are motivated by a sense something's wrong something's wrong with the way we're thinking about sex. So what, just what was the problem? What was bugging you or others about it that you think needed solving? Yeah, great question. Um, I mean, honestly, I think rethinking sex is something of a call to arms against just our current almost anything goes sexual culture and the assumption spoken or not that consent is the only standard we need to have for whether sex is good or not. Um, and the idea that by just observing, you know, more and varied forms of consent, we'll be able to fix the issues with sex. I mean, I'm an opinion columnist at the Washington Post. I've always been interested in questions of culture and society and ethics. 
And I was writing a lot about the Me Too moment in 2017 and 2018. And some of the most obvious cases, Harvey Weinstein, Matt Lauer, um, showed that many of the problems we thought had been resolved by the sexual revolution and the feminist movement and, you know, the mainstreaming of consent as a norm hadn't gone away. Those cases had clear answers, but then there were other stories, the New Yorker short story Cat Person, the sort of Aziz Ansari debacle, basically, that surfaced kind of tricky issues that weren't so easily resolved. These were consensual, ostensibly consensual sexual encounters that were still causing young people and women especially a lot of pain. Women were still, women and men were still having, you know, sex that was depressing, traumatic, unwanted, even saddening, and they didn't really know why or how to talk about that. So I wanted to dig into those situations a bit more deeply and take stock of where we are, you know, figuring out what it was that was ailing our sexual culture that despite sex positivity and the mainstreaming of consent, we were still having all of these issues. You know, what assumptions were we holding that didn't serve us? Where did we think the sexual revolution should have taken us? And where did we end up? And of course, if consent isn't enough to help us have a healthier sexual culture, what exactly do we need? Mm. Yeah, I, I think this, the whole issue of consent as a sort of legalistic approach is obviously runs through your book. And in fact, um, I had Martha Nussbaum on a few months ago now talking about Title IX. Uh, wow. And the problems and the problems with Title Nine, and and and, and we'll we'll get to that. But even as I'm just listening to you now talk about it, it it seems to me that we need to unpack this word "good" in the context of sex quite a bit. Um, so there's good sex in the sense of sex that is satisfying, physically satisfying, right? And we you, you talk about that's the, the problem of just seeing sex as physical is part of the problem. But you're, you're using good in two different ways, it seems to me, or, or we can use it in two different ways. One is as good as I was satisfied by it. Like I was, you can imagine, let's say a woman saying, it's really good sex. And what she might mean by that is just, I get a huge amount of pleasure from it. Or he might mean that. But there's also good sex in more of an ethical sense. So you bring a kind of ethical dimension in. So I guess on that, in that way, if you define it that way, and, and well, let's 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 see how you kind of respond to that, and what how you define good sex. Am I am I making a fair distinction there between the two ways we use the word good? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the, I think one of the strongest claims in this book, um, what I was hoping to provoke was an understanding, or at least agreement that we need to talk about what good means. Um, you know. In our current sexual culture, I think very rightfully after you know the sexual revolution and all that came with it, we don't want to judge. Um, you know, we don't want to bring moral questions into the public square. In some ways, we're almost afraid to talk about what ethics are or should mean. Um, and I actually think that our reliance on consent, which is exactly you know a legal criteria um, for defining whether sex is okay or not. Um, actually pushes us and helps us to elide the question of, okay, good. What do we mean by good? Do we just mean legal? Or should we have a higher standard for that? In which case, yes, good sex is not necessarily just, I wasn't arrested for having sex with this person. I didn't commit a felony or an assault. 
But, you know, we should be asking ourselves, what does good really look like? Does it mean caring for our partner? Um, Does it mean some higher standard? Does it mean that we have to look for more than consent in our encounters? And I would say sort of trying to define that and have that question out in the public square again uh, takes us many steps forward from where we currently are. Yeah, I worry a little bit that the consent question, I mean, it's obvious that it's required, right? That it's a sort of necessary but not sufficient, I think would be the way you you frame it. And, you know, I have three sons, all of whom are college or post-college age. And so, you know, the, the conversation among parents now is, you know, there are the two sex talks you have to have with your sons, right? Uh, maybe there's three, actually. There's the reproductive one. There's the biological one. There's the ethical one or the romantic or interpersonal one. And then there's the legal one. Uh, and so you are having these different kind of conversations. And one of them is around this issue of consent. And I worry a little bit that so the kind of sex you're worried about, which is transactional, which is physical, etc., um, might almost be encouraged by the emphasis on consent. I don't know if you go that far. I wouldn't say, I don't think you go quite that far, but, but I'll, I'll suggest it and see how you respond, which is that in some ways the focus on consent has actually encouraged the very thing that we, we least want in some ways, which is not the thing we least want, but you get consenting but bad sex, right? Yes. And the mere fact you've got consent means that you don't have to think about it anymore. It's a bit like a regulation. It's a bit like filling out your taxes. It's legal, therefore it's okay. Yes. And sometimes it encourages that. It, it sort of discourages the sort of reflection and interpersonal engagement that, you, that otherwise we took for granted. I mean, I'm much older than you. I'm in my 50s. And so you took for granted that it was going to be give and take and negotiation and conversation in it. Whereas if you make it this binary, yes, no, you lose that. Right. I mean, a lot of the sexual encounters that I you know talk about in the book and was interested in during the Me Too moment are almost these gray areas. You know, consent is... A baseline. It's a non-negotiable. Um, I think just the fact that we've, you know, even kind of gotten to the place where we can say consent, it's good, we all need that, is a step forward. Um, but exactly as you said, it is a baseline. It's a floor. It never should have been the ceiling. And I think, you know, we have, again, because of this sort of unwillingness to kind of interfere in other people's lives and, you know, bring our own moral intuitions or beliefs into, you know, the public conversation and make them standards for other people. We have kind of made consent into the key, you know, just the sort of gate that you need to get through. And then once you have consent, as long as you've gotten consent, and maybe it's consent of the right kind, it has to be affirmative, or even better, it has to be enthusiastic or some new formulation as long as you have that thing, you then no longer really have to talk about or ask about all of these other things that are going on in the gray area. If you have consent, sometimes it feels like you don't then have to talk about, huh, is the sex that I'm having good for the other person? Is what I'm doing good for me? How does this sort of contribute to society at large? Um, a scholar at Georgetown University, Robin West, a feminist law scholar, talks about the sort of legitimation effect of consent. And she describes this as, you know, saying that when you have consent, if you just focus on consent, it sort of brings with it an underlying assumption, a legitimation of whatever comes next. If you have consent, then the thing that you're doing is assumed to be good. It's assumed to be fine. You don't have to ask any more questions about, you know, how you got that consent, how transactional the encounter is, what outside pressures might have led to the giving or not giving of consent. 
it just sort of legitimates the whole thing and you don't have to think about it anymore. And I think that that's bad. <laughs> I think that we actually do have to think about more than just, you know, did I get the yes so I can get the sex and not think about it anymore? But, you know, in the book, I propose an idea of willing the good of the other as a higher standard. Um, we do actually have to think about what the good is. We do actually have to think about, you know, our partner's good and how to help them achieve it. And if we're in the place, in a place in which we're actually able to do that. And I think that those considerations should be brought to bear on whether we have sex or not, or, you know, whether we define the sex that we've had as good. And it's a loss and a failure that they don't seem to be in many cases today. Yes, yeah, so I mean, you quote uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, to that effect of willing the good of the other and building on, I guess, Aristotle and so on. And that's actually an opportunity for me to sort of go back in some ways to your own journey, because there's a strongly autobiographical feel to uh, to some of this book. Um, you're talking about your own journey from sort of purity culture and your evangelical background uh, and so on. Um, and, and then you, you've converted to Roman Catholicism uh, and Aquinas makes makes an appearance in here. Can you talk a little bit about how, I guess, your, I mean, your religion, put bluntly, but also your theological sensitivity and your changing theological sensitivity has influenced your own view about this new ethic of sex, this kind of willing the good of the other. You talk quite honestly about your own sort of, you know, ping, I think you say you ping pong between purity and promiscuity, or that's not the exact language, but, but, but you know what I'm talking about, but it's like, and I think we can all, you know, empathize with these polls. So how did your, how did your religious journey or theological journey influence your, your view about sex? You know, it's funny. Um, Michelle Goldberg also quoted that line in her New York Times piece about yeah. the book. And yeah. obviously, I knew I was writing this book about sex to be read by other people. But when you see that in the New York Times, it's kind of like, oh, Dad, do we really need to? I don't know if we needed to do all that in public. Uh, did, you, did, did you have to? Did you have to go back to the book and check that it was there? Did I really leave that in? I, I knew it was there, but I, I was like, oh, maybe. Hmm. Maybe I didn't want people to notice that one. Although it is a stand, it's obviously a stand, it's a standout line because it's personal because it's because it brings it to life. Yeah, you know, I I think I. When I first started researching for this book and thinking about this topic, it was almost an academic question. Like, what is happening in our sexual culture? What are the problems? How do we fix them? Um, but then as I was writing the book, it did slowly become more personal and more autobiographical because in some ways, if I'm talking about how sex should be better or how people should behave ethically, I'm necessarily implicating myself and my own actions in these in these questions. Um but to go back to my own story, I promise I'm not just trying to slide away from this question. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a um, an evangelical environment, an evangelical environment. Both of my parents are practicing Christians, and I converted to Catholicism in college. Um, and I think, especially growing up, you know, in sort of an environment that held kind of purity culture as a standard and thus sort of stepping back from what seemed like the mainstream sexual culture in college. You know, I saw a lot of my friends having these sexual encounters um, or people I knew that they just didn't seem to like. Um, they weren't enjoying this and yet they were doing it because they felt that they should do it. Um, and like their clear dissatisfaction with the environment made me think, okay, maybe something about the ideals that they're holding is actually a little bit off. Like they're clearly not serving these people in the way that they think they should. But then, you know, sort of entering that culture myself, um, I think I had a backdrop 
of sort of moral, if not moral training, I think moral and theological thinking from, you know, my faith about what does sex mean or what should sex mean? What does it mean to be good or moral? What does that look like? What are things that go into that? And sort of having that backdrop of thinking to bring to questions of sex, um, I think really allowed me to kind of form my thinking along clearer lines. There were some standards that I could at least go to, even if I disagreed with how they've been practiced in the past, um, to think about whether, you know, these sort of traditional teachings actually had meaning today. And as it turned out, it felt like many of them did, even just the question of, you know, how do you be good? How do you be an ethical person as opposed to just someone who gets permission? How should you treat other people in light of their human dignity, their personhood, keeping that in the forefront of your mind as you have sex, as you go through these different encounters? Um, What could be the value of things like temperance or prudence or even chastity in some ways? Um, I think sort of having that kind of robust thinking to refer to, even if I disagreed with sort of some teachings at some times was helpful in structuring my thought. Yes, you have this uh, very nice line. I can't remember who it was from now, but it's, uh, I think it's an ancient line, which is if you're, someone offers you pleasure, you should pause. Um, who was it who said that? Um, it was Epictetus, actually, who was not okay. a religious figure, a Stoic philosopher. No. Stoic. That's right. Stoicism is pause. Yes, that's right. And so that idea of the pause uh, and the and the thinking seems to be something that's really stuck with you. But you obviously haven't I would characterize your position and see if I'm getting this right or wrong, which is the sex is relational, necessarily relational, it's interpersonal. And so how you view the other person is hugely important. Therefore, an ethic of willing the good of the other is important. And therefore, it's about love, quote, unquote, love, you know, we'll come back there, but defined in that way, in the kind of Thomas Aquinas way, it's about love for the other person. Um, Then that doesn't have to only happen within marriage. Right, so the teachings mm-hmm. of the Roman Catholic Church, and probably some of the, it certainly sounds like the churches you were you were raised in, and so on, would be that it's marriage, and the way to ensure that it's ethical in in the way that I think you mean it, which is willing the good of the other, then you should do that within holy matrimony. That doesn't sound like that's where. That's certainly not what you say in the book. It feels like you've landed somewhere along the, along the spectrum between it's just biological, it's just transactional, and it can only take place within marriage because that's the only way to ensure the goodness of it. Is that right? Is that fair? That is fair. I mean, you know, my religious background certainly informed how I thought about the question. But in the book, you know, I'm not just I'm not writing for a Christian audience, necessarily. And, you know, I think I drew from a pretty wide range of religious and other kinds of texts, mostly also to focus on the ways that people have asked big questions about, you know, sex, this thing that is a part of all of our lives and clearly holds meaning for us. Um, And I think that just having sort of that long range inquiry into the question was helpful. Um, And also, I think a shared understanding in many traditions that sex is meaningful suggested to me that, you know, we needed to think hard about how to make it ethical and good. So I wasn't necessarily trying to go back and bluntly apply like past religious mores, um, but trying to move forward and understand how to make sense of sex with both past and present inputs. And, you know, the question of love, one of the things that I asked many of my interviewees, and I had, I just had so many conversations about sex with so many people, 
you know, when you when you tell people that you're writing about sex or writing a book about sex, they'll just corner you and tell you everything. Um, sometimes kind of the craziest stories. But when I ask people what they thought a good sexual culture would look like, or what they thought made for good sex, it seemed that the intuition that people came to was something like care or empathy or even listening to the other person. As one woman put it, you know, when she was describing to me a very sort of aggressive hookup that she was having, she remembers saying to her partner, can we not love each other for a single day? Even if that single day is just like that moment that they're hooking up and, you know, not even into tomorrow, but in this moment, can we love and care for the other person and see them as a human being. And I think that it is possible to do that, you know, outside of holy matrimony. It may be possible to do that in just a one night stand. I do think when talking about willing the good of the other, and actually willing the good of the other is Aquinas's definition of love, mm. um, Aristotle's definition of love, rather, and not necessarily just in a romantic sense. You know, being willing, being able to will the other person's good kind of gives you a responsibility to know that person so that you can sort of figure out what their what their good might be, what you're actually wishing for them. And I do think that it might be harder um, to do that if you've only known someone for 20 minutes. But that definitely doesn't make it impossible, but you have to try. Yeah, I was going to you anticipate the question I was going to ask you, which is that whilst it's clear that there's more likely to be that kind of love, um, and relationality in, in a relationship. Um, it doesn't mean it's not possible. And, and the time, time is pretty crude proxy of that, I would say. So the blunt question I was going to ask, which I think you've just answered is, is it possible to have good sex as you've defined it on a one night stand? Uh, and I think you've just answered, yes, it's just harder or less likely because you haven't had the time to build the kind of relationship that would tend to be associated with that kind of love that, wills the good of the other but it's not it's not excluded by your definition of good sex that could happen as part of a one-night stand right yeah i mean i think it's possible to be you know sort of a good person and thinking of the other in almost any circumstances or any circumstance rather but you know definitely there are situations that make that easier or harder or more likely or less likely um you know even just thinking about how how do you know how to treat someone well in a non-sexual context <laughs> It's a little bit easier to figure out with somebody who you've known for more than a minute. Um, so I do think in some ways that, you know, actually trying to practice this higher standard, this willing the good of the other might lead to less casual sex, at least, you know, early on. But considering the the sadness of the encounters and sort of the depressing and disappointing state of our sexual culture as seen by so many of its participants right now, that doesn't really seem like much of a loss yes if if you're just excluding the bad sex i think that's that's obviously true um i wondered a little bit though whether i mean to some extent you report or you report on people reacting to the very problem that motivated you to write the book so you are seeing lots of people rethinking this and and actually you do it just in recent years we've seen so-called sex recession which is a great headline from Kate Julian's piece but um which I think is now a book going to be a, that she's writing a book about but we are seeing you know people in their 20s are having less sex 
which has now got a lot of social conservatives really worried. I, you know, I never, I never tire of enjoying the fact that the social conservatives who are worrying about all the sex people were having 10 years ago are now really worrying about the declining fertility rate because people aren't having enough sex. But it seems like, um, there's a move and there's less teen sex. There's certainly much less teen pregnancy. We've seen a you know, significant drop in unintended pregnancy rates and so on. So if, do, do you actually feel quite hopeful that to some extent, there is already a recalibration going on here. There's a kind of movement among people to just say, including young people, right, which is a, a reaction against the sort of hookup culture of it's just sex. What's wrong with you? You're prudish if you don't do it. Um, because I read some of your stories and I, and I see some in some of the data, actually, that culture is culture is moving in more of the direction that you'd want it to already. Yeah, I, I would hope so. I try to be optimistic on this point. And I mean, you're right on sort of the conflicting data in some ways. Um, there is in some ways a, a sex recession. Uh, rates of sexual activity and, you know, partnership and marriage have actually reached a 30-year low as of 2021. And it's not all due to COVID-19. These rates have been dropping for a while. But I think the worrying thing about, you know, this sort of sex recession or this relationship recession is not necessarily that people are not having babies or not having sex the act. Specifically, when you talk to people, what you hear is that the majority of them say that dating has gotten harder for them, that they're pessimistic about being able to find a relationship or able to find someone who cares for them, that they've been hurt in the dating market or in their encounters and thus feel like they should just sit this one out, you know, that they have kind of given up. And I think that is that is the thing that conservatives and anybody who cares about, you know, the flourishing of our society should be worried about because loneliness kills, as we've learned, and relationships are core to our happiness. So in some ways, the question is not, are people having enough sex, but are people able to form the meaningful relationships and commitments that they desire? And I think that's the alarming part. Yes, yes. I do think that perhaps some of that might be a realization that certain kinds of sexual activity or certain short-term relationships or certain uses of, say, a reliance on dating apps or something is not serving people and thus they, you know, feel compelled to pull back from that sort of thing. But when we worry about fixing the sexual culture or in this book, you know, in Rethinking Sex, the question I'm asking is, okay, people want to have relationships. People, you know, want to be cared for by another person. People want to be embedded in this larger thing and they feel like they aren't able to to reach that. That's the problem. How do we how do we fix that? And, you know, sex is just one part of that question. Yeah, that's interesting. And I was thinking a bit about the the stories you tell of I mean, there's a very vivid story in the book, um, which maybe you can tell actually, rather than me me half telling it, of the woman at the party who you met, uh, who talked about choking and that becomes, and being choked in bed and that actually being quite a, a common thing. You talk quite a lot about in the book. Can you tell that, the, the, the story? It feels like that was quite an important story to you, actually, in terms of, uh, of helping you along the way to the book and just that general trend towards those sorts of behaviors. Yeah, no, definitely. So yes, to tell that story, this is kind of what I was alluding to when I say that, you know, when you say you're writing a book about sex, people tell you things. I was just, you know, at a party, at a holiday party, actually, and talking with a woman about my age. And she was telling me, you know, she pulled me aside to tell me that she had like met this guy. She really liked him. He seemed great, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But he chokes me when we're having sex. 
and I don't really like that. And then she asked me, so what do you think? And this story was <laughs> alarming to me for a number of reasons. Um, one of which was just the fact that, you know, this woman was in this, having these encounters that she, she said she consented to them, um, but that she didn't feel that it was okay in some way to push back against this behavior or kind of felt that it was the best that she could get. And she felt so unsure of her sort of status and ability to complain about something like this, that she had to ask me, a total stranger, whether this was normal and okay, and she should just like deal with it. Um, And I found that worrisome, just because it seemed, if that's the state of affairs, you know, that that people are experiencing, that suggests something deeply wrong, you know, with how people are experiencing the sexual culture, how they're going about dating and relationships and sex. And then the question was, okay, what is missing from this encounter? You know, it's not consent because she sensibly gave consent to the situation. And then some would say, well, you know, if she didn't want it, she should have kind of stood up on her feet and walked out of there. But what then about sort of our environment, our beliefs about what sex should look like or what women should be up for um, or what should be, I guess, seen as normal in a relationship made it so that she didn't even feel that she could sort of protest this behavior, that she didn't have any standards to point to to be able to tell this person, you know, no, I I don't want to do that. That's not okay. Uh, So it just it raised a lot of questions for me. And it was also pretty saddening. Yeah, it was. I mean, it, it those sorts of stories really just I think they get to the heart of some of these issues and one of them is this idea of like consent not only as a kind of binary yes no but also sometimes as a binary you know now 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 then a sort of temporal binary too um and but of course consent to what right and so and, and the reality of these encounters is that there's there's a whole range of activities that potentially could engage in from you know a kiss on the cheek all the way through to you know some hardcore bdsm or something and then the kind of question is like who wants what and how do we negotiate that and who finds out who wants what and so on and so there's this continuous communication that's going on not always verbal actually i think that's kind of part of the problem with consent cultures is kind of verbal whereas there's a lot of non-verbal communication going on um right from the off right um and so it seems to me that like you said she consented so i guess she consented to the choking in the sense that she didn't say stop doing that right right so in that very negative sense she consented to it but but it's not what she signed up for i mean if you see what i mean it's not like just because we've gone to bed together does not mean everything's on the table all of a sudden, right? It means that what happens from here on is going to be a process of ongoing negotiation. And so that might also be, I I worry sometimes that's happened with consent too, which is to women, the message is, well, you consented, right? Actually, Mm -hmm. that's what happened to Martha. Actually, she consented to go to bed with a guy, but she didn't consent to intercourse. And so that's what turned it into rape for her. But but she went to bed with him, right? But that doesn't, just because you go to bed with someone doesn't mean that you have to have intercourse with them. And it certainly doesn't mean you have to have anal sex. It doesn't mean you have to BDSM. Right. There's no, there's no kind of single moment where you agree to a whole range of everything. Yeah. And that seems to have been lost. That seems to have been, it seems to have been lost a little bit in these stories to me. It seems like, you know, coming at this again from slightly older perspective is like, like it's not like you should have stood up for yourself. It's more just like you should have said, I know, sorry, I don't like that. 
And he should have been okay with that. Or he should have asked, right, in the first place, because that's probably unusual, relatively unusual enough to ask, right, before doing. And then if she said no, or if she try, he tried it and she'd immediately said, no, I don't really like that, then he went, I'm really sorry. And they would have backed off. I mean, it's almost like the self-silencing that's going on on her part, but also the complete lack of listening or attempt to get be heard on his part. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are so many things wrapped up in this story to kind of pick apart. And I think there are two of them that I want to pull out of what you just said. Um, you know, one of the one of the threads in this in rethinking sex is sort of about how consent, just consent, is not enough to make a sexual encounter good. Another is sort of questioning how we got to the place that we would even think so, and how we got to the place where many women and men still feel that they, or rather, feel that they should they should consent you know, almost to be a good feminist or to be sort of a modern person in the world, mm. to be fully self-actualized. It's kind of uh, almost assumed or people, young people have imbibed this idea that that means you have to be up for it. You have to be willing to be adventurous, to try anything, to say, no, I don't like that. It's not just withdrawing consent. It's also saying, I'm a repressed prude who's not a good feminist or I'm sex negative. Um, which is, again, I, I think a, a misunderstanding of what sex positivity was supposed to mean. And so part of my question was sort of, how did we get to this place where sex positivity is sort of totally uncritical, where it means that you just go along with everything without stopping to ask, wait, why do I, do I really want this? Is this, again, like good for me or my partner? When did we start doing this? And why does this seem okay? Um, so that that is one much larger question that I think also threads through a lot of the stories I talk about in the book. And then, you know, the phenomenon also of just what sexual acts have we mainstreamed or normalized and should everything be on the table or assumed to be mainstream? Because I think one of the things about this story that was interesting too was just the fact that she was like, well, on, you know, a first or second date or a first or second time we were having sex, this person thought it was normal and appropriate to strangle me, <laughs> um, mm. which, you know, a decade or two ago would not have probably been seen as a mainstream practice that you do to someone without asking at the very least. So how have we gotten to the place, whether it's through, you know, the mainstreaming of um, rough sex through pornography, um, through sort of how sex is depicted in the media, that certain actions that may have been, you know, less common or less usual in the past have been normalized now. And what does that mean? What does that do to our culture? Um, there's another researcher, Debbie Herbenick, who has done research on, you know, the reasons for the sex recession, why young people have decided to pull back from having sex, or so it seems. And there are a lot of theories about this. One is that people are spending more time on technology and not, you know, as much mm. time just talking to each other. Um, another that she theorizes, though, is that there is a sense of fear in some circles that, you know, what might happen in a sexual encounter has become so unclear, so diffuse, almost so normless that people don't want to deal with it. They're afraid of what might happen. They're afraid of being surprised by some sort of sex act mm. that they don't really want. And so they would rather just not. And that's yeah. something that might be pulling people sort of out of relationship culture. And 
that is a problem. And how did we get to that place? Yeah. And on the other hand, I think, and you point to this possibility too, which is that the consent laws and especially the kind of enthusiastic consent laws that California passed for its public colleges anyway, can have a bit of a chilling effect on men potentially too. I mean, perhaps especially if there are alternatives in the form of pornography and so on, which is, you know, although of course the risks are overstated, there is nonetheless a kind of, it's just safer to avoid, right? And and you <laughs> do, like even some of the work that I I did that I ended up mostly not publishing you know I talked to a lot of guys who just wouldn't dream of making a pass at a woman one of the reasons why dating apps have become popular um it isn't it is for lots of reasons but one that I heard from a lot of men is because people don't think you're a creep if you're on a dating app because you've already you know you've at least consented to the fact that you're on a dating app both of so, you know why you're there yeah yeah whereas like the idea of approaching a, a, a woman like and i think you do quote someone to this effect like in a coffee shop or a bar or something like that i mean it's just for a certain generation of men it's virtually unthinkable now because they will assume that they're, they'll think they're a creep and so on whereas for my generation that was basically the only way you could possibly get anywhere was by actually risking and enduring repeated rejection um and it wasn't seen as creepy to try and and, and what you learned, of course, was that there was a certain art to it, right? A certain skill to it. And you learned certain skills of respect and negotiation and so on. If you wanted to be successful, right? If you were boorish about it, then you were unlikely to be successful. And so I wonder if it hasn't had that slight effect on men. It's a chilling effect both on men and women in a way. Yeah, no, definitely. That's actually, I think, almost the second chapter of the book. Um, this idea that even though we're ostensibly in a much more liberated and clear sexual culture, people still seem to be kind of miserable and confused. And I talk about the term heteropessimism, which mm. was coined in a New Inquiry article um, a couple of years ago. And it's sort of this, it's a posture of kind of malaise and depression <laughs> at the state of especially straight romantic affairs. You know, women feel turned off by sort of a sex and dating culture that expects them to do all these things that they don't want to do and doesn't give them recourse to say no. Men, you know, find that, well, okay, I guess I know that I need to get consent. But even if I get consent, I could still be West Elm Caleb'd, you know, if not arrested, at least seen as just like a total bozo and a creep and, you know, have my name splashed online or whatever for trying to ask someone out. There's no longer, it seems almost a clear norm of what you should do and what is allowed. If everything is allowed, what actually is allowed? Um, and a lot of that confusion keeps men, especially, you know, pulling back. They just don't want to deal with it. And I think that also contributes to sort of to this sex and relationship recession. If men and women almost feel that they can't relate to each other anymore, that they don't know how to relate to each other safely. And yes, unfortunately, norming consent has not really fixed that, it seems. Then that's a problem, too. And how did we get there and how do we get out of it? Yeah, and in, in, in one way, you can see consent, of course, as a sort of hugely feminist uh, and kind of woman-friendly approach, and it obviously is uh, in many ways. But in another way, it can be seen as kind of very masculine uh, approach to this problem, um, which you know, which is yes, no, you know, like a green light, red light, um, and I think it, it brings up this question of the kind of difference between male and female sexuality, which you also. Um, talk quite a bit about but i'd like to talk more about because i think if anything you understate it uh the difference between the way men and women kind of think about sex and engage you know just that is one of the big differences 
um, between men and women. Like some of the differences are overstated, but I think ironically, this one's become understated partly as a result of the sex positivity movement, which in one reading basically became, was basically a way of saying, why can't women be more like men about sex? Uh, it was like a masculine standard of sex and then hold women to it. Right. Um, and that, and that's just wrong. I mean, it's just biologically wrong. It's chromosomally, it's hormonally wrong. It just, um, it's just wrong. And in fact, you have one stat in the book that I think in some ways is more revealing than another. And I kind of tried this stat out on kind of some of the women in my own life and they're like, yeah, duh. And it was women orgasm within committed relationship versus one night stand. And I, I, I had the stat up, but I've forgotten it. Maybe you kind of know it by heart. But there's a huge gap between the chances of having orgasm in a committed relationship versus in a hookup, right? Three times higher or something. Like, I mean, 40%. What, what, do you know the number off the top of your head? I don't have the number off the top of my head, but it is startlingly high. Yeah, and in sort of sexual culture circles, it's called the orgasm gap, basically. Oh. It's that well known. Yeah, uh, and it was high. Um, uh, and I know that... I'm to kind of to kind of bring it up here, but I can't can't say. But it was it was a big gap, right? And and of course, like so, what that means, of course, is and you say it to most women, they say, well, of course, you have to trust the guy, you have to be in that relationship, you have to like. There's a lot that goes on around female orgasm in particular, which is much more relational. I mean, just as I also had Carol Hoover on my podcast earlier talking about testosterone and so on, and I've done quite a bit of work on this myself. Is like, this is an area where there is just a really big and stark difference between men and women. And it seems to me that one of the most important roles of culture has been to find a way <laughs> for men and women to work this out when everything else equal, we are different about this. We, we just are. Uh, and avoiding that fact. And you say that, you say, look, men and women are kind of different and you describe the difference. But, but it wasn't quite clear to me like where that led you. In, in terms of what this means for the way we think about sex, because I think it, it should lead us to recognizing that there are certain rituals or norms that are absolutely about recognizing this difference. And one of them is about recognizing that men might be more likely to approach and they might be more likely to push, but that women are also empowered and respected for feeling differently about that. Right. And it's easy to talk about first, second, third base and so on. And there's a line from Margaret Mead in my head now where she said, the trouble is that women have to have the conscience for two, which is a great <laughs> line. Right. But it's yeah. sort of true. And, and, and that feels incredibly unfair and, and obviously not ideal. And you want men to learn both. But um, I'm rambling a little bit now. But I, I, I'd like to talk a bit more about this really big difference because men don't have as much problem having coming to orgasm on a one night stand or to pornography or the sex worker, and we can maybe get to sex work in a minute too. And so there's clearly just this massive difference in the way that men and women connect their sexuality to their relationship. Yeah, I, no, I think that's entirely true and really important. And, you know, one of the projects of Rethinking Sex was also to sort of surface almost false assumptions or, you know, untruthful assumptions that we as a culture held about sex that were actually, you know, holding people back from achieving the relationships of apparently care, you know, actually, maybe commitment, maybe love that they really want. And one of those, you know, that I explicitly pulled out in a chapter was men and women are not the same. Mm. Um, and it does seem like there has been in some ways, some investment, almost mistakenly in, you know, in the in making a case for sort of equality, um, that men and women are both 
people of equal value and, you know, their sexual pleasure, their ability to work in the world is of equal importance to then sort of condition that on if they're equal, they should act the same saying they're equal. You know, if we say they're equal, we shouldn't acknowledge that there are differences between the two. Mm. Um, And I, you know, I would push back on that as a feminist. I think that actually to really support women, you know, to, to really acknowledge their equality, you also have to acknowledge that women are women and, you know, men are men and difference does not make them unequal. It simply means that people can be different and we can respect them in their differences and see how those can work together, not to, you know, elide that understanding. Um, and that kind of ties back to how I, mm. you know, was thinking about the, the idea of sex positivity and, you know, the question of, what did the sexual revolution, what did second wave feminists sort of set out to do and where did they end up? And if you actually look at, you know, what Ellen Willis, you know, Jermaine Greer, all of these writers were saying during the sexual revolution, they were advocating for a world in which women were valued as much as men, you know, in which they had the same amount of sexual agency as men, in which they were respected as people. But because men did and frankly still do have more sort of power in society, that would have involved almost a utopic shift. That would be a huge shift. And so in some ways the the feminist movement and sort of the movements for sex positivity were kind of co-opted by an easier way saying, well, we, you know, it'd be kind of hard to change the world entirely um, to make both women and men, you know, freer and more loving people as Greer says um, in a quote that I use why don't we just make women more like men? Just Mm. bring women to the standard of, in some ways, kind of the worst sort of man. Condition freedom on the freedom to to act without caring about other people and say that that's what freedom looks like. So, you know, sex positivity moved from we want women to have sexual agency and for their sexual desires to be, you know, fully represented and fully considered to... Maybe sex positivity means that women, too, can be free to read Playboy, which does not really have the same, does not really come to the same sort of more freeing, more loving end that the original feminists might have wished mm. for. Mm. Or women can hook up just as much as men, uh, even though they probably right. don't want to, or they probably actually, but then there's something wrong with them if they if they don't want to is is the problem. But what's striking about the the trend and the, and the story, the stories that you tell, including the one of the woman uh, and the choking and so on, uh, is that actually you've got women here. So if you're talking, my, my guess is that most of the women you spoke to, they're relatively young. They're probably pretty highly educated. I don't know kind of what your sample you know, was, but, but my sense is, and they're pretty economically powerful women. In fact, in some ways, college educated American women are the most economically and culturally maybe powerful women in the history of the world right so -hmm. these women probably the woman at the party is an incredibly powerful woman like so much more powerful than her mom or or certainly her grandmom was right um and yet that power doesn't seem to move across into the bedroom and it's just extraordinary to me that 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 there's a sort of dis there's a simultaneous like incredible rise in female power measured by any kind of economic measure or educational measure and so on and yet that hasn't seemed apparently translated into power in the bedroom, at least based on the stories 
that you were telling, right? It's shocking to me if someone, you know, another, maybe not a whole generation, but but certainly older, that this would be happening. It's impossible to imagine my feet, like the women I know, would go along with that at any stage in their lives. It's like, so it's weird. It feels like there's almost been a disempowerment. Is that right? Yeah, well, I think that's, I think one of the really interesting questions here is also how you frame power and what, power looks like mm. and what sort of being successful or having options look like looks like you know if you if you only discuss power in terms of well who has the most money in this equation or who has the most in some ways political capital that is not necessarily what translates to power in an interpersonal relationship and by only sort of focusing on power that looks like that we are leaving something very important out of the question you know Another, a friend of mine sort of joked to me that this book, that Rethinking Sex is about sex, but it's also kind of a critique of sort of liberal individualism um, in a sort of broader society-wide sense. Um, and I think that that's part of that, too. It's, it is in some ways a critique of how we define power and freedom. You know, if we define freedom as being able to say and do whatever you want you know, to bring your desires fully to bear on any situation and to not have to take into account someone else. Is that a good definition of freedom? Like, is that actually what we should be striving for? And especially if, you know, you're thinking and talking to people as I did who say, you know, well, I want to be cared for. I want to be in relationship with another person. Like I would actually, you know, want my sex life to be mutual, to have some sort of mutualism within it then focusing on just questions of, well, who has more money or empowerment in this sort of very capitalistic, transactional sense, does not really equip people to think about how to work with each other personally as individuals who sort of share goals, who are in a shared society, who do and want to depend on each other. Yeah, I guess I, uh, I'm enough of a liberal individualist to be more optimistic than you are in the sense that like you've talked about the potential if it's just the individual basically extracting and it, you, you described a very extractive individual right how do i get what i want right and the other person is literally just an object to it breaking the golden rule of one go, go to the others the reason i'm more optimistic about it is because i think most people want to be in a good relationship right and they want to be in a relationship which is mutually fulfilling including in terms of sex right of course there are extremes there are people who are not like that sociopaths but most people do want to be in a good relationship, right? And so, and part of that means thinking about the other person. You're not going to have a very good relationship if you if you're a sociopath. It's really hard. And so, like, like if the relationality comes in. Like I'm comp- like most people, and I think you'd you'd agree with this based on your interviews. Most people want that, men and women. Um, it's just how do you get to that point? What's the what's the path to that to that point? And so, I think it's fine. Because the danger otherwise with sort of coming out against liberal individualism is it doesn't allow for the differences. It doesn't allow for for the fact that we are all different, right? And so it could be used against all kinds of like unusual sex, for example. Whereas I actually came away from this book th- feeling feeling like in some ways BDSM and sex work, which I don't think you're, I, I think you're not very positive about those, in some ways model more of the kind of approach that we might need to take. I mean, after all, like if you if you're engaging in kind of BDSM, there's a huge amount of like 
negotiation. There's a huge amount of transparency. There's safe words that I don't like that I want to get out and so on. Similarly, the sex work and so on. And so whereas it's, it seems like it's in the kind of non BDSM or sex work, or it's in the hookup, it's in just you go to bed with people, that actually we don't have that language. And so in some ways, I think that those maybe kinkier or whatever the right phrase is, approaches to it are actually healthier. They're more transparent. They do will the good of the other because they allow all these ways out. I mean, like if the woman you described, like what was her safe word when she was being choked, right? Why could she not say, was if she was in a BDSM religion, you bet she would have been able to say no. Yeah, no, that's that's something that I've heard from a lot of people, actually, um, that in the kink community, just having sort of explicit conversations about what one person wants and what the other person wants and how to care for each other is actually a model that we don't necessarily see in, you know, the average straight relationship and that 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 actual willingness to think of that other person, draw them into the equation is a really healthy thing. I think, though, also that, you know, one of the one of the things that I critique is the this idea of transactionalism um, and this idea of treating the other person as an object and sort of privileging one's own desires over the other person. And I, you know, I don't know that sex work solves that problem. I think that one of the things that in some ways subconsciously afflicts our sexual culture is this idea that, you know, I am the sovereign person and it I can go out and either negotiate or you know, get in some other way the sex that I want. Just that sort of thinking. In the book, there's an example of a woman on a dating app who says, you know, like I ordered a guy off of Tinder. Yeah, yeah, that's a great line, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> like the mindset that, It's like man yeah. dash, man, man dash or something like that. Like, <laughs> right. Putting her on a scooter with a, like, with a war, warmed up bag, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, there, in some ways it does feel like there is almost a, a reification of that that mindset in our culture that it's good to be able to be the person who can kind of point and get what you want, but getting what you want, if that's another person, then you're necessarily kind of turning that person into an object. You're commodifying them. That makes it harder to form a relationship with them. And that kind of trains you into a certain mindset that's antithetical to relationships. If you just think of the other person as an object, and that's one of the things that in rethinking sex, I'm really trying to push back against very hard yeah but i i wonder if your argument does actually apply in those in those situations um i was thinking thinking about the sex work one and you know specifically and uh obviously there's a lot of negotiation there's a lot of transparency and so on too and you know i had joe henrik on who he's taught me that there are 30 there were 32 words in latin for prostitute right so this is like not a new issue there are actually more prostitutes working in the u.s than there are priests and pastors about a million right so i can so this believe is like, that actually <laughs> right so it's like this is and it's never going away it's like it's and 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 there is a sort of utopianism sometimes in the idea that it might and, and it's all it's almost always men paying for sex and so on too but when you hear sex workers talk there was one i can't remember her name now it's on barry weiss's podcast but but actually that arguably there is quite a lot of love in the Aquinas sense in those interactions. Certainly the way sex workers sometimes talk about how they feel about the, the, the men. Sometimes those are men who would otherwise struggle to get sex. Maybe they're disabled or whatever, or, or, but not necessarily. And actually the men may be partly because there's an awareness of what's happening here that's transactional and they need to play by the rules they know what they're paying for, actually don't treat the sex worker the way that your, the woman you spoke to the party was treated. They wouldn't probably dream of choking her. 
right? Um, because probably something bad would happen to them if if they didn't. Actually, so I just wonder if it isn't possible even in those relationships to get more love. I, I think you're a little bit too dismissive of of the relationships, even if they're fleeting and even if there is money involved, um, as in some ways kind of modeling an approach that we could learn from elsewhere. I, I, I understand what you're saying about the long-term corrosive effects, but... I think it's perfectly possible for men to be, you know, to have sex work or whatever in one part of their life and then be in a perfectly committed relationship in another. And I don't think that's as easy for women to understand <laughs> because, of the, because of the differences we talked about earlier. Right. I mean, as a woman, that is probably very true that I think I, I would have a different perspective on that. And I mean, I also, I also do want to point out though, that, and this is something that's, you know, discussed in, in feminist circles too, um, that sex work takes place like on, on a long gradation and the experience of, you know, a sex worker who chooses to go into sex work, um, and is, has the sort of financial and social capital, as you pointed out to, you know, appear on popular podcasts probably is having a very different experience than, you know, somebody who is trafficked into sex work and does not have that sure. recourse. Um, and so I worry about conflating, you know, all sex workers with like the very empowered and happy sex worker who has appeared on a podcast. So there's that question. But I mean, this also to go back to really an earlier question of yours, is there a possibility for, for love, for mutual care in almost any sort of relationship, not even just sexual relationship, relationships in general? I think yes. And part of the project of rethinking sex is to provoke conversations about how we can make that happen in all circumstances. I think even just thinking about that question, how do I make my relationships less transactional, make them hinge less on the yes, no sort of goalpost of consent and think about, you know, the larger question of what a good relationship means and looks like and how I can achieve that. That always, that already brings us several steps further from where we started and having those conversations aloud and in public can only be a good thing. Yes, I think I think the point about sex work being of all kinds is well taken, right? And you can think of plenty of examples where that ethic is absolutely not taking place at all, but others where where it is, just as you can think of married you know, a abusive married couple, right? Where he's abusing her on a regular basis or much less likely the other way around, but you know, where there's absolutely not an ethic of that. Right. And so there's, there's an, and I think there's no kind of formula. There's no institutional formula. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's an, it's an ethic rather than a law or a formula. And so that leads you, I think, to be quite libertarian in practice Right, you're not banning things, as far as I can tell. Right. You know, you're not banning porn or banning dating apps or whatever. And maybe you wouldn't go as far as me and actually argue to legalize sex work. I would say to protect sex work, but but you're certainly not you're not and you're not, and you're not really into shaming, as far as I can tell, except unethical behavior. You're not saying one night stands are bad. You're not saying BDSM is bad. You're not saying marriage is necessary, or you're not saying marriage is bad. Right? Some feminists. Say. What you're doing is you're saying what well, is the content that counts. It's the content of the relationship. It's the nature of the relationship. That's that's everything for you. Yeah, I mean, at the very bottom of the question is, are we treating other people with sort of the human dignity that they deserve, and how do we get to that place? I mean, one of the one of the biggest questions in the book um, is comes from the feminist writer Rosalind Pacheski, actually, and it's just why do we want what we want. And what would we want if we had the choice? 
you know, what are the influences in our current milieu that are making our sexual culture what it is that seems to be that seem to be pushing so many men and women, especially young men and women to enter into these encounters or relationships that are really not bringing them anywhere close to, you know, the sort of empathetic, caring, loving relationships that they want. Are we going to be kind of brave enough to interrogate our choices, interrogate our own behavior as to whether it's ethical, as to whether it's correct in a factual sense, um, as to whether it's bringing us to where we want to go. I think just being sort of pushed to ask ourselves these questions is almost the most important thing. And it's not, yeah, about, you know, when you say there should be sort of more standards or higher standards, it's not about outlawing certain kinds of sex or outlawing certain behaviors, but it's asking people, you know, what are you doing right now? And is that bringing you to where you thought you would go? And if not, how do we do better? Yeah. And it might come back a little bit to some of your, the early conversation about religion, which is, I've done a bit of thinking around the idea of respect and respect being based on the equal dignity of people being able to look each other in the eye. And actually just that, that sense of the unique value of every single person, right? I mean, like, to, if one were to get very, very religious about this, certainly from a Judeo-Christian perspective, you'd say, like, everyone's made in the image of God. And so the person that you're having sex with is a person who's made in the image of God. And so how you, and, and, and so are you. And so how do you, like, take that, that's, that's a very kind of religious way to kind of put the ethic, but it's, it's the kind of way of the framing around kind of respect, which seems to me to underpin all of your thinking. So there's a kind of, you, you could base your ethic on a Christian basis, you choose not to, but it seems to me that it, it I mean, or, or it's not required. You think that ethic is there in it, but it, would that be a fair way of bringing this all the way back down to a kind of theological underpinning? Yeah, no, I think, I do think that's right. I think one of the things that, that does underpin all of my thinking is exactly that, that humans have an inherent dignity, and we have to figure out how to respect that in order for any of our encounters, any of our relationships to be good and ethical. You know, being ethical in some way requires remembering that and taking note of that um, in our relationships with each other. But yeah, I don't know that that's necessarily a, a religious stance. I think one of the things that I found really interesting about the conversations that I had for this book um, with men and women of a variety of different backgrounds was, you know, again, asking them what they wanted, what they thought a good culture looked like, what they what they wanted for themselves. Almost everyone I, I mean, no, everyone I spoke to really had this, this intuition, this, I want to be treated like a person. I want to be cared about. I want to be listened to. I want to be respected. And I ideally would be in a relationship where I can do that for the other person too. Um, and in some ways, you know, if we think about this in a religious context, I think so many religions seem to have had that intuition, you know, that Mm. people are real and meaningful in some way, that there is some inherent dignity and that we need to be moving towards that. And that makes sex somewhat special because it is, it, it is the ultimate form of interpersonal interaction in some ways. And so it really brings that whatever is theological or ethical or however you kind of frame it really brings it to the fore. So, well, that's a, that's a, I think a great note um, and an optimistic note, maybe a hopeful note anyway, so to end off with the idea of ethical sex. And so congratulations again uh, on, on the book and your courage in uh, talking a bit about your, your own, your own story through it. I think this, I think this is a conversation that we're going to be having a lot more of 
um, over the I coming so. years. I, I really do. I think your I think your timing is perfect, actually, because I'm just sensing it. Even in my own kids, um, you know, boys in their kind of early twenties, really thinking about this and getting and a lot of thoughtful women around them really thinking about this. And and I do th- I think there's a kind of healthy rethinking around kind of hookup culture and so on too, but that doesn't want to go back to the Puritanism. Right. So, the, so right. I, I think it's like, it's really kind of messy, right? I think everyone's kind of figuring it out probably as they do. And so I think your books are really a really positive contribution to rethinking sex positivity, if I can put it that way, without, <laughs> without falling into the trap of sex negativity. And that's, that is yeah. not an easy trick to pull off, honestly, Christine. So thank you for that. And thanks for coming on today. No, thank you for having me. Hopefully we can keep rethinking this together. Thanks for listening to Dialogues. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And if you did, please take a moment to follow, like, rate, and share the podcast in all the usual places. And send me your thoughts and ideas, including for future guests, to dialoguespod at gmail.com. That's dialoguespod at gmail.com. I'll see you next time.